Good morning. I'd like to know why Sean gets applause when he comes up here, and I get nothing. Because for Sean, we're applauding prayer. For me, we're applauding the, the Word of God, right? All right. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 as we continue our series through this Old Testament book. I want to thank Brian for filling in, preaching last week on short notice. Uh, I had to take a break from... Uh, we can give Brian a hand. No, just kidding. He, uh, as I was listening to his... I go, yeah, this, this Sermon on the Mount is really good. Maybe we'll... I thought, maybe that's the next place we go after Daniel. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I had to take a break from sermon prep to watch my two grandsons, uh, David, age four, Jonathan, age two. Uh, Christina and my parents helped a little bit, but it was mostly me. We kept the two boys for three days because their mother, my daughter, uh, gave birth to my third grandson, uh, Samuel Dean Curtis. That's right, David, Jonathan, and Samuel. Good, good little theme we got going there. I'd ask you to pray for Samuel. He came a few weeks early, sort of like the short notice. Uh, he's dealing with being small and uh, jaundice, and he's had to be in the hospital several times. He's out right now, but he was just in the other day. We had the boys again for, uh, for that. Here are a couple of pictures of Samuel and his brothers. I show these for two reasons. Well, three now, so you guys could go, ah, okay. Second, because I'm proud of my three grandsons. And, and most importantly, third, these two pictures, believe it or not, illustrate something about the book of Daniel. Really, they do. If you remember, Daniel can be divided into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 6, are historical in nature. We've done those. They're six true stories that occurred throughout the life of Daniel and, to a lesser extent, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they lived as exiles in a foreign land, in uh, foreign kingdoms, actually, plural. And like David is doing with Samuel in the picture on the left, we can smile at, embrace, and even love these first six chapters. Who doesn't love Daniel and the lion's den, right? They provide us as elect exiles uh, living in this fallen world with lessons and encouragement and hope. However, the second part of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, are uh, what we've termed, what has been termed apocalyptic in nature. The focus of these chapters is on the visions that God gave to Daniel. They're filled with complex, mysterious imagery about future events, events which are often uh, difficult to understand. And like Jonathan is doing with Samuel in the picture on the right, we can sometimes be less than enthusiastic about holding on to these chapters. We can at times throw up our hands saying, I don't understand this, I'm not sure if I like it, and so I'm not going to touch it. But I believe it's important for us to embrace these chapters as well, these difficult chapters, to take the time not to necessarily uh, get stuck trying to decipher every possible meaning of the complex imagery, 
but to understand the message that God clearly reveals through these apocalyptic passages. Because the message or messages that we find in chapter 7 through 12, like the first six chapters, are also meant to encourage us as we live as elect exiles in this world. And that's what I hope you saw in chapter 7. And that's what I want us to see again in chapter 8. So as we hear the strange and mysterious images of this chapter, don't throw up your hands, but instead embrace them as part of God's word for you today. Amen? Moving off the, uh, the boys there. Now what we find today in Daniel's vision is a look into the future. This is in fact a characteristic of biblical apocalyptic passages. They're visions given by God. Uh, They contain strange, mysterious images about future events. And sometimes that future includes the end of history, the end of the world. I say sometimes because not all, uh, or even most, even these last two chapters of Daniel's visions are focused on the end times as we think about them. While the word apocalyptic means pertaining to the apocalypse, the end, universal destruction, Daniel's apocalyptic visions are not mainly of the end of history or the destruction of the world, but they do show that apocalyptic destruction goes on throughout history. We saw it in chapter 7 in Daniel's vision of four beasts which were revealed to be four kings. We weren't told which kings or or kingdoms these beasts represented, and so it seemed best to take them uh, to hold who they were lightly, uh, maybe to represent kings and kingdoms throughout history. This would certainly include the empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, which some people believe these beasts represent, and it would also include the final earthly kingdom Uh, described in the book of Revelation, led by one known as the Antichrist. But Daniel's vision in chapter 7 was not limited to the end of history. And the same thing is true and even clearer in chapter 8. This vision is different from that of chapter 7, but they do have some similarities. They both contain, as we'll see, I didn't know, I thought we might read it first, but I'm, I'm kind of foreshadowing it and then we'll read it. They both contain animal imagery, which represents these animals, as in chapter 7 and chapter 8, will represent kings and kingdoms. But in chapter 8, we're given a much clearer, a much more limited, specific interpretation. It's as if chapter 7 is the broad overview of the nature of beastly kingdoms throughout history, even unto the apocalypse, the end of the age, but chapter 8 is a limited slice of that history where we are told uh, the specific identity of these kingdoms. And from our perspective, looking back historically, it's fairly simple to figure out who the kings are that they're talking about. Today, we can read, and we will, Daniel 8, and see that his visions, his prophecy, were fulfilled in what for us is the distant past. And so Daniel 8, like Daniel 7, Uh, reminds us that there are apocalyptic, destructive events and kingdoms and kings throughout history. And even though I believe that there will one day be, uh, be, uh, there will come the beast 
of Revelation 20, who's called the Antichrist, I also believe, as we'll see especially next week, there are Antichrists throughout history, those who oppose Christ. I say next week because as I prepared to preach on Daniel 8, it became clear that I could not cover the whole chapter in one week, unless I got to do the biblical critical course as well. So part one, part Brian said, no, I can't. So like chapter 7, I've broken the message into two parts. Daniel's vision in chapter 8, which we're going to read, includes a a two-horned ram, a one-horned goat that becomes a four-horned goat, that in turn gives rise to a little horn. Now this week, we're going to look at the ram and the goat, including the four horns, and next week, we're going to focus on the little horn, because this little horn gets really the most attention and does the most damage. He's the most antichrist-like. But today, let's begin by looking at the vision of the ram and the goat. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. The previous vision, recorded in chapter 7, occurred in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. This vision in chapter 8 occurs two years later, while Belshazzar is still the Babylonian king, and the Babylonian empire is still ruling the known world. Verse 2, and I saw in this vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel or palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulani Canal. Okay, unlike the vision in chapter 7, Uh, In this vision, Daniel sees himself in a specific place. Now, there's no reason to think that Daniel actually went to that place or was transported to that place, the province of Elam, which was 230 miles east of Babylon in modern-day Iran. But in his vision, he sees himself there. Why? Well, in Daniel's time, Susa was the capital of Elam outside of Babylon. Uh, But later... Susa would become the winter residence of the Persian kings, making it the diplomatic and administrative center for the Persian Empire. And the Ulani Canal was a man-made waterway near Susa. Now, why is that important? Because as we'll see, Daniel's physical location foreshadows that this vision, unlike the one in chapter 7, is established in specific historical events. What I mean is that this vision will focus on specific and easily, for us, identifiable historical figures and kingdoms. And so the vision is in a specific geographical location related to those kingdoms, specifically outside of Babylon, which is not part of this vision, and in the center of the new future power of Daniel's vision, which will be identified as the Medo-Persian Empire. Are you guys following along? That makes sense? If not, hold on, it will. So in the vision, Daniel sees himself in Susa in the Ula, uh, at the Ulani Canal. Then in verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Notice that unlike the vision in chapter 7, Uh, with beasts that were like certain animals. Remember, it was like a bear or like a lion with wings of an eagle or like a leopard 
with four heads. I think that's the one. Daniel's vision here is not like a ram, but it is a ram. So he's seeing a, a, an actual ram with, with two different sized horns standing beside the actual canal, the Ulani Canal, near Susa. Again, this makes the vision more tangible, rooted in a specific place. Verse 4. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great, or large, or domineering. So the ram with the two different sized horns is very powerful, great, arrogant even. He's charging to the west, north, and south, and none, no beast, no kingdom could stand against him. Verse 5. As I, consi- and as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn behind his, his eyes. So we have a very powerful ram with two different sized horns, and now we have a floating, possibly moving really fast, goat with one conspicuous horn coming from the west across the whole earth. And remember, this, this can and probably does mean uh, the whole known earth. It's not the other side of the ocean as we know it now. He came to the ram with the two horns, verse 6, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at it in his powerful wrath. So the goat is great, he's angry, he's got wrath, and he's charging at the ram. A little bit like football, the rams and the goats. There's no goats in football. Verse 7, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and stuck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So the raging one-horned goat is, is violently, quickly victorious over the formerly very powerful, arrogant, two-horned ram. The ram's horns are shattered and it's trampled on. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horn, horns toward the four winds of heaven. So at first, the goat becomes as the ram was, very powerful, very great. But its conspicuous, its large conspicuous horn was also shattered, resulting in four other horns pointing in all four directions. Now the vision goes on to talk about the little horn that comes out of one of these horns, and we'll touch on that today because we have to for clarity. Uh, but like I said, we're, we're going to save most of that for next week. So now let's turn to the meaning of the ram and the goat. If you jump down to verse 15, we read, Then I, Daniel, had seen the vision. I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulani, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Daniel doesn't get the vision, which makes sense because it's of future events. It's complex imagery, future events. So someone, probably God in human form, the giver of the vision, calls the angel Gabriel to interpret the vision for Daniel. 
Now, assuming angels have unique names and there's only one Gabriel, which Gabriel means uh, mighty one of God, this is the first of his four appearances in the Bible. The second is in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. But pop quiz, what were Gabriel's other two appearances? He appeared to Mary in where in the Bible? Luke chapter 1. And his other appearance? Nice try, Pop. <laughs> uh, same chapter, he appeared to Zechariah. Before he appeared to Mary. So the order of appearances goes uh, to Daniel in chapter 8, to Daniel in chapter 9, to Zechariah in Luke 1, and to Mary in Luke 1. And, in Zac- and he, to Luke... To Zechariah, he announces the birth of John the Baptist. To Mary, he announces the birth of Jesus. So apparently Gabriel is the go-to angel not only for announcing the coming of prophets and saviors, but for explaining visions about coming kingdoms. Verse 17, So he, Gabriel, came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Again, it seems that this, if you read about angelic encounters with Human beings, this seems to be the standard uh, reaction. When an angel appears, the universal uh, emotion of fear comes out. But he said to me, understand, O son of man. Remember, son of man is a way of saying human human being. Uh, I forgot to mention last week, so we we were in... In chapters 1 through 6, the main language there, except for the beginning, is, was... Does anybody remember? That it was written in. Aramaic, and then back when we get to chapter 7, it switches back to, it was at the beginning, the introduction was Hebrew, now we're switched back to Hebrew. So this is in Hebrew, and that word man uh, is the word Adam, Adam in Hebrew. So son of Adam, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan or others talk to the children, you're a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. So that, that's sort of what this means here, uh, Human being, spoken from someone who's not a human. I mean, I wouldn't say to Randy, son of Adam, because we're both sons of Adam. We're both. But this is an angel, and so he's, understand, O son of Adam, son of man. Uh, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me. And made me stand up. So first Daniel's afraid, and then he seems to pass out. Not sure if this is because Gabriel, of Gabriel or because Gabriel tells him the vision is for the time of the end. Verse 19, the angel causes Daniel to stand up, and then he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. So Gabriel places this vision in time. In verses 17 and 19, he says the vision is for the time of the end, or the appointed time of the end. And in verse 19, he says it's at the latter end of the indignation. Okay, a couple things here. First, Gabriel is referring to the entire vision. Uh, We're just looking at the ram and goat, but he's also including, this is after the vision of the little horn as well, which we'll see next week. And his vision is progressive, okay? Uh, First the ram, then the goat, then the four horns, and then the little horn. 
And as we'll see, the vision represents what will take place historically over several hundred years. The focus of the vision, however, the reason for the vision, is to make known the appointed time of the end, the latter end of the indignation. So second, we need to understand that the vision is a prophecy that, the, that wrath will come to an end. That, that word indignation literally means to froth at the mouth, you know, to be so angry or spitting. Figuratively, it means fury or rage, anger, wrath. So, so there will be a time of indignation, a time of fury, of anger, of wrath, but it will come to an end. And the vision is meant to inform God's people about the end of this indignation. So the vision is good news. It's not bad news. Thirdly, the expression, the end of the time of the end, is not necessarily referring to the end of history that we associate with the return of Jesus Christ. When some people read the words time of the end, they assume immediately that Daniel must be speaking about the last days, about the second coming of Christ. But that does not have to be the case. Uh, as Dr. Wegner pointed out last week, in our biblical critical courses, if you're with us, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter quoted the Old Testament book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, he's quoting it to describe events that are taking place right then in the first century on the day of Pentecost. He said, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is saying that Joel's prophecy of the last days uh, was being fulfilled right there in the first century on the day of Pentecost, not at the end of history when Christ returns. Now, I believe that God has and will continue to pour out His Spirit, just continuing to look at the Acts passage and Joel, on His people from that day forward, meaning Pentecost signaled the beginning of the last days. But my point is, in our passage, the appointed time of the end does not have to mean the end of history, and in fact, it probably doesn't. This becomes clear when we get to the specific interpretation of who the ram and the goats and the four horns and the little horn are. We're going to look at the ram and the goat in just a second, but for clarity, what the end is probably referring to here, we need to take a peek at this little horn. The little horn that we'll look at next week is more than likely referring to a man named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, a ruler uh, of the Seleucids uh, around 167 BC, 383 years after Daniel's vision, Antiochus would instigate, instigate a great persecution against the Jewish people. And the end of this persecution is probably what Gabriel is referring to by the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. It's the end of this time of persecution. This vision, as we'll continue to see, is written not about the end of history, but is written to prepare God's people for a time of trouble that they would face, letting them know that uh, that time would come to an end. This is prophecy. It's history written in advance. The prophecy revealed to Israel that after some time, spanning several kingdoms, which we'll find out in a second, a crisis would occur that would create a time of indignation, a time of wrath. But that time would come to an end. 
And that's what the vision is pointing to. So the end here is good news. The end spoken of is not the end of the world, but the end of this time of indignation. The end of the time of wrath that was going to come upon the Jewish people. This is all before Christ, by the way. This is all pre-church, pre-Christ. So Daniel was saying, be encouraged to his people. Yes, a time of indignation is coming for the Jews. But they should take heart because it wasn't going to last. It would be a short time. Notice that he says also, the appointed time of the end. The time of the end of this persecution uh, was not random in nature. It was appointed. Appointed by who? Appointed by the sovereign God. God is sovereign over history, and he would not let his people continue to be persecuted. So, So the vision represents the end of the time of this future wrath that would occur, which we, as we'll see, know happened in the second century B.C. And we can be fairly certain about that because of what comes next. Verses 20, 21 root us in the exact time frame of this vision. They tell us exactly who the ram and the goat are, and we know historically when they existed, so let's finally find out the identity of these two creatures, if you haven't figured it out already. As for the ram, this is verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Media and Persia, of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, voila. There we go. Remember, Daniel's given this vision while Belshazzar, uh, the Babylonian, is ruling. But if you remember from chapter 5 of Daniel, it's at the end of Belshazzar's reign when he's weighed in the balances and found lacking that we read uh, just right after that, he's defeated by Cyrus, the king of Persia. So the ram with the two different sized horns is just right around the corner, uh, historically speaking, for Daniel. And it represents uh, this unequal alliance of Medes, smaller horn, less powerful empire, and the Persians, larger horn, more powerful empire. And the goat, which is next, is is the king of Greece, of the Grecian Empire, which follows directly after the Medo-Persian Empire. And looking historically, we can identify the goat's large horn as, who was the first king of the Grecian Empire? Come on, history, history 101, world history 101? Alexander the Great, right. Alexander succeeded in toppling the mighty Persian Empire from his position of power. He conquered virtually the whole known world uh, from Italy to India. And he did it very quickly. And he did it at a very young age. I think before 33 or something. He did it as if floating across the world. But he died suddenly, again at age 33, leaving behind two sons, Alexander and Heracles, These boys were ultimately murdered, and the empire was then divided between Alexander's four powerful generals. These four generals and the four parts of Alexander's empire that they ruled are the subsequent four horns of the goat. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, Alexander, in place of which four 
others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So they're not as powerful as Alexander, but they divide the kingdom. Four horns represent four kingdoms established by Alexander's four generals. And that's just a historical, not leap, but just step. Now, it's important to understand that Alexander's rise to power after two centuries uh, became two centuries after Daniel's made his prophecy, 200 years later. These four kingdoms could not have been predicted by any normal human mind. There would be no way for uh, a son of man to predict this. In fact, these prophecies are so accurate, these mysterious images are made so clear that liberal scholars those who do not believe the Bible is God's holy and inerrant word, suggests that Daniel or someone must have written this book after the events took place. That it wasn't written in the time of the Babylonian and Persian empires, but it was written much later. For them, that's the only explanation for the accuracy of Daniel's visions and their interpretations. They do not believe this prophecy. They think it's recorded history because it's so accurate. However, we know why prophecy is so accurate, don't we? It's because God wrote the book of Daniel. God inspired the prophet to write the future. So in Daniel's vision, his prophecy, we've seen a two-horned ram, which was specifically identified as the Medo-Persian Empire, We've seen a one-horned goat, which was specifically identified as a, the king of Greece, who we know from history is Alexander the Great. And we've seen four horns, which are four kingdoms that come after Alexander and almost certainly represent the four generals who divided Alexander's Grecian empire. So as you can see, the vision of the ram and the goat and the four horns, these kingdoms that arise from the first king are not referring to the end of time, as we might think about it, they're actually our, it's referring to our things that happened in our past, not to the future. So we've seen the vision, we've seen the meaning, now let's look at the message that we get from this ram and goat imagery stuff, imagery, prophecy. We've already touched on the fact that these visions would have had a message of hope, would have been a, a message of hope for the Jewish people during this time of exile and later persecution. Imagine how they would have felt as history unfolded, as the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And, and, and they look back, oh wait, we've heard of this before. And then as the Alexander conquered the Persians, oh, we've heard that before. They would have seen that this was exactly what Daniel's vision predicted. And therefore, they would also know that a time of persecution is coming, this time of indignation. They would have been able to prepare for it. They would have uh, also known that it was, wouldn't last forever, that it would come to an end. So for the Jews, living, in, living during this time of history, this vision has a very practical message of hope in times of difficulty. But what about us? Well, for us, these visions, these prophecies, they've come and gone, right? They've been fulfilled. They are, they're all biblical prophecies, history written in advance. And we can read of their fulfillment in our history books. But what I want us to understand is that the message of this fulfilled prophecy is not 
that God has the power to look into the future and tell Daniel what would happen. He certainly has that power, but his power is much greater. He not only knows the future, but he also controls and plans the future. He controls the rise and the fall of empires. That could be a a theme here of this chapter. God controls the rise and fall of empires. This has already been established in Daniel, by Daniel. Remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the statue? It was revealed that the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar himself. But it was also revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, God gave Nebuchadnezzar his power. And the same thing is true for every ruler throughout history. God is sovereign over the rulers of nations and empires. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God didn't just look into the future and see the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire and then create this vision of the ram and the floating goat. He instituted instituted that the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus would conquer the Babylonian Empire. And he instituted that the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great would conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is a message of God's sovereignty over empires and nations and kings. He appoints their beginning and their ending. Think about it. Like the vision in Daniel 7, uh, this vision describes a series of kingdoms in the form of animals animals that exalt themselves. We see one kingdom rise after another. They achieve greatness, but then they're shattered. The ram seems invincible until the goat arises, but then he's swiftly destroyed. The first horn of the goat throws the ram to the ground, and no one can rescue the ram from the horn's power. But at the height of his power, the large horn too is shattered. In other words, no matter how great and powerful and dangerous an empire may be, it's simply an actor in a play by by the God of the universe. These earthly kingdoms come on the stage, they play their part, they say their lines, and after the role is finished, they're removed from the stage and they fade into history. And And their rise and fall predicted accurately centuries ahead of time by the Lord through His prophets, remind us clearly who is directing the course of history. Earthly empires come and go, but only the kingdom of God is forever. So even beyond the message to the Jews about the end of their coming persecution, the message of Daniel's vision is good news for all saints. All saints who suffer at the hand of earthly kingdoms, whether the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, or present-day governments. These empires that to human eyes look so powerful are just sheep and goats whose destiny lay in the hand of the divine shepherd, the Lord himself. And this is true of our nation as well. No No matter what direction our elected leaders take, God is ultimately in control of their rise and fall. Now, just a side note, not to get too political here, 
God's sovereignty over our nation doesn't mean, which some people believe it does, and they believe the same thing about evangelism, mind you. Just God is sovereign on who's saved. Well, then don't share the gospel. That doesn't make any sense, right? Same thing here. God's sovereignty over our nation doesn't mean that we as Christians just sit back and watch it fall. We, as the people of God, are called to represent Him wherever we are. We are ambassadors of Christ. And we represent Him certainly by declaring the gospel. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, includes what He in His Word says is good and right and just. Remember from our study in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities is held in tension with we must obey God rather than men. And we represent God by proclaiming the gospel and standing up for what is good and right and just according to God's word, even if it means standing in opposition to our elected leaders. And in the United States, where we live, in case you're wondering, we still, to this day, have the privilege of voting and speaking out. This means we need to be informed about the candidates, the political parties, the issues, and we need to support and vote for those candidates who best, not, no one's perfect, who best promote what is good and right and just, including, and maybe for us especially, the freedom of religion, the freedom to proclaim the gospel. My point is, knowing that God is in control of the kingdoms of this world is meant to give us hope and encouragement in times of difficulty, but it's not meant to make us lazy and disconnected from our responsibilities as representatives of God in this nation. Okay? Thank you for allowing that. Not that you had much choice, I guess. Now, I want to conclude by taking us beyond the message related to God's sovereignty over uh, governments. There's also a principle of God's sovereignty over our lives. He doesn't just look into the future and know what will happen to us. He's actively directing events so that, so that as Paul famously writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. This is a promise for those who trust in Christ, for those who've given their lives to the Lord. He's working out all things together for good, no matter what direction, and he's working. He's not seeing, he's working. No matter what direction we perceive our lives are going in, no matter what beasts fill our nightmares, depriving us of sleep, no matter what threatens our safety and security, no matter the difficult circumstances we face, God is in control, and God is on our side. God is in control, and God is for you, His child. God is engaged, and He works for your good. Perhaps your health is threatened by the discovery of a lump that might be cancerous. Perhaps you must care daily for a loved one who you don't know how to cope with today, let alone tomorrow. Perhaps you wrestle with depression and despair to the point that you've contemplated suicide. Perhaps you're already experiencing intense pain and suffering from a sickness that is only likely to grow worse. Perhaps you can't get your visa to go to Africa where God's called you, and we could go on. Let this vision of Daniel be an encouragement to you 
these beasts that seek to hurt you and trample you are nothing more than big sheep in the Lord's eyes. If the divine shepherd is with you, he will not let you be trampled utterly into the dust. The menacing world that is out of your control is never beyond his control. The one who raises up world leaders and then assigns them to the pages of ancient history books is the same one who controls and works for your good in your life. If you can say along with King David, the Lord is my shepherd, then know for certain that he wants what is very best for you. Even if you must suffer under tyrannical rulers and governments. And one final thing, and I close with this. Our shepherd, the one who works all things for our good, as he did for the Jews in Daniel 8, he warns us in advance that, that we will also have to go through difficulties. Remember 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12? If you were with us in our study of 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You've been warned. I think it's in 1 Timothy. Uh, uh, all those who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. There's promises. for That's a promise for you. You've been warned. He warns us that we will, in fact, face trials, opposition, persecution. But our shepherd does not always tell his sheep why they must go through these difficulties. Instead, he asks us to trust him. Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of a shepherd she met in Scotland. Insects would often infest the skin of animals, of his animals, so he would have to give them a special treatment. This treatment involved dipping them in a barrel of antiseptic. The shepherd would take his staff. You guys do that with your sheep, your goats? Take them in, put them in. Okay, sorry. Riverside has less bugs, I guess, I don't know, than Scotland. The shepherd would take his staff and run it under the horns of the ram. He then would turn the ram upside down and push his head and body under the healing water. The ram would kick and flail, trying to get away from the shepherd, but he was, too, but he was not strong enough. The shepherd would push him under for 30 seconds and then bring him up. The ram would be frightened, gasping for breath, still trying to get away. Then the shepherd would take the staff and push him under the healing water a second time. He wanted so desperately to be able, the shepherd wanted so desperately to be able to tear this, tell his poor little lamb, poor little ram that everything was all right, that this was, was being done for his good, but the sheep could not understand because as the psalmist writes, such knowledge is too, was too wonderful for, for me, for the sheep. It's high. It cannot be attained. For the ram, it was just a trial. For the shepherd, it was, part, it was just part of his plan to give this little ram the best. And the same is true for us as we face the beasts, the trials of this world. Whether they come from governments or from our own wrong choices, all we can see is the trial. We're not like the ram because we have the ability in the midst of our trials to trust our shepherd and rejoice that he's working all things together for good. So I hope this, this has been an encouragement for you. We'll continue on next week in uh, the rest of chapter 8. Today, seeing that God is guiding the rise and fall 
of empires for his purposes, and knowing that, that the same God is guiding the ups and downs of your life for his purposes, which are always for your good. Trust him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your sovereign control, your control over nations, your control over empires, your control over our world. But most of all, Lord, we, we reflect on your control over our lives. Lord, that, and, and as your children, you're working in our lives. You're not standing back and observing. You're at work for our best, Father. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here as we face innumerable difficulties, whatever they might be, physical, emotional, spiritual difficulties, Father, that we would trust that you're at work, that we would receive them, that we would go through them, that we would allow by the power of your Spirit to overcome them if that is in your will. Lord, but we pray that uh, along the way in all things we would put our trust fully in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.